So good day, good afternoon, good morning to everyone, depending on which time zone you're in. Welcome to HGD.tax, where we talk about all things that are tax. And we do these live streams more or less every week. We took a break for August, like most people did, but now we're back on schedule. This year, this week, we're talking about U.S. taxes for those residents in the Gulf states, primarily the UAE. Next week, we're going to do Singapore and, and so on and so forth. So that that's that's where we are. Now, this is being recorded. So if you do not want your image to appear, all you need to do is keep your camera switched off. It will be recorded. And for those who couldn't make it and for those who saying that they need to leave early to attend to other events or whatever that's okay so it'll be recorded it's will be made available on our website which is hg.tax as well as on youtube and on facebook and our facebook company page and basically wherever else you're going to get your podcast because we publish on i think we 23 to 24 podcast platforms so itunes soundcloud amazon uh, Spotify. So wherever you get your podcast, you can, you can find this. So don't worry about it. And you can get the link and you can share it with your friends. That is no problem at all. Now, in terms of the formalities, we are not giving advice because no one can know your situation inside out. And someone will need to know your situation inside out. So I'm a tax advisor, but I'm not yet your tax advisor. We're going to talk about general principles and hopefully you would leave with an appreciation of what the key concepts are that you need to keep in mind as you find yourself the right tax advisor to work with you and your family or your business, right? So you were invited, Hannah sent an email or a message to everyone, I think it was yesterday, asking if you would like to submit some questions and some of you did thank you for that and we'll go through those questions if it is you did not and you would still like to submit questions feel free to do so all you need to do is type them in a little box below if you're on zoom like many of you are if you're on facebook you can type in the box below on facebook as well and we will get to them in the order in which they are provided so uh, so yeah, again, not advice, considerate education or maybe even entertainment. Uh, I don't think anyone should be taking tax or legal advice from someone who's just on online. You need to get someone engaged who's properly qualified and able to do so. So without further ado, we will jump into the questions that you guys have submitted over the past few hours or so. Okay, so lots of questions on foreign companies and thank you for those that send those in and thank you for those that send in the questions on the trust as well. And what else have we got? On Form 8854, on W8s, W9s and crypto. And there's one person that asks a question on taxation for crypto. So that's what we're gonna talk about this evening or today or this morning, depending on where you are. We're gonna talk about a little bit about trust. We're gonna talk about owning or controlling a foreign company. We're gonna talk about the W8, W9 forms 
the form 8854 for someone who's giving up their US citizenship or green card, as well as something on crypto. All right. So someone is asking about uh, what is a trust? And they're asking about the distinction between a living trust and a land trust. And I guess this person is a real estate investor like many of you are, right? So I think the first thing to, to clarify is that a trust is not a way to, ordinarily speaking, a trust does not really give you any sort of tax advantage. I know that when you, especially when you look at movies or certain television shows, it does give the impression that it's this, you know, this holy grail, this, this basically uh, some sort of tool that allows you to pay zero taxes. And, and normally speaking, that is, that's not the case. A, a trust isn't actually a legal entity, but it's a relationship. It's a contractual relationship. It's a fiduciary relationship. So uh, it is, it, it exists in a sort of gray area, I guess, which is leads to some sort of misunderstandings. But anyway, so a trust is kind of like a contract between the person that has created the trust. Normally, this person in the US, we call that a grantor in English common law, like in some of the free trade zones in in the Emirates, for example, the IFC, which is based on English common law, it'll be called a set law. Uh, sometimes they call it trustor. And it conveys usually some sort of asset into this relationship with someone who will now be responsible for it, usually a trustee. And there tends to be a beneficiary as well. So those, those tend to be the, the, the key elements. So a living trust that that would be i guess we can describe it as a trust that has been created within the lifetime of the grantor or the settler which is in contrast to other trusts which can be created upon someone's passing so it's something that's created while someone is is actually alive now this living trust could be it could be revocable or irrevocable in the sense that you if it's revocable the person who's the grantor still has some degree of control over the assets within the structure, within the trust. If it's irrevocable, then they basically hand it over all real control to the trustee. So, so those, those tend to be the two differences, right? Now, a land trust, it's a type of living trust, but it is conceived to hold title to real estate, or, or real estate related assets, such as real property, land options, contracts for deeds, mineral rights, and, and stuff like that, right? What's the difference? And here we're talking primarily about some uh, a trust that has been structured within the US. So the land trusts are very specifically designed and the difference really is in the drafting to hold real estate, as we mentioned, whereas a living trust it can hold real estate, but it can also hold other types of assets as well. So the advantages really, I, I've established that it really has nothing to do with tax optimization, ordinarily speaking, right? It's really about probate avoidance and privacy. So that's that's what a living trust allows you to do. So it's a way of succession planning. It's, 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 it's part of the conversation that you would have around estate planning. 
So it's it's not really something that's usually conceived of in isolation. It's normally part of a comprehensive succession planning or an estate planning uh, strategy where you're looking at some degree of privacy as well as probate avoidance because in the absence of a, a structure like that, upon the your passing, your assets, even if you have a will, your assets will still need to go before the courts. And depending on which state you're in, it could be a matter of public record. So, you know, you want to keep that private. Uh, you want to keep the assets private and you want to avoid probate and just make sure that there's a, a smooth succession from one generation to, to the next. So do, do keep that in mind. Even if, that, even if you have a will, which is obviously a more popular planning tool, things still have to go before probate. So I hope that helps. It's not, the, the key takeaway really is that it's not about paying zero taxes, no matter what you've seen in a movie. It's really about, uh, depending on, on the way it's structured, it could be about asset protection. It can be about wealth protection. It can be about probate avoidance. It could be about really efficient and effective uh, you know, succession planning, but it's not normally about tax optimization. If it is that you have assets outside of the US, of course, the, the free zones, most popular of which I would, and at least within my little ecosystem would be the DIFC. They operate on, generally speaking, under English common law, not American, but English as in England, English common law. And they do allow for trust structures. But of course, for that sort of, uh, if that's a road that you want to pursue, a route you want to pursue, you should really get, you should really sit with an advisor. We don't do that, but there are advisors, obviously, that will help you get that sort of structure in play in the UAE, or perhaps you want to have something in the UAE for your assets outside or in, in, in the Emirates or somewhere in the Gulf States, something separate and then something separate in the US for a few assets there, but it needs to be done in a coordinated fashion. So I'd really recommend that you, you seek professional advice from a team that understands both the, the legal system within the Gulf area depending on which jurisdiction has been triggered, as well as within the U.S. So uh, I hope that answers your question. The, the, the real takeaway is that you need to sit with someone and give them the details of your situation and get specific tax advice, tax and legal advice. Okay, so that's that. Next question. And again, if you didn't get a chance to submit your questions in advance, you can do so now. All you need to do is type them in the little box below. And I will get to them in the order in which I see them on my screen. So next one, someone is asking, okay, so I'm just reading, it's a bit of a long question. Okay, so someone is, of course, this is pretty common. They wanna set up a company in uh, one of the Emirates, right, in a, in, a, in a free zone. And they're asking about the tax implications, tax and uh, the US tax implications of doing so. Of course, setting up a company is uh, a pretty common means of not just of running your, your business, but also of getting residency in, in certain Gulf states. So, because you can form your company and that company then sponsors your your 
your visa, your Emirates ID, or whatever the case may be. So, so that, that is pretty common. But of course, that's a it's a good thing you're asking because it could have tax implications depending on your situation, right? So we look at it in terms of generally speaking. So this is, again, we're being very, very general and you need to get advice specific to your situation. But generally speaking, we look at it where you own a control, you as a US exposed person own a control less than 10%, where you own and control between 10 and 50%, and when you own and control 50 uh, more than 50 percent and when i say you i mean someone that's us exposed so if for example you may have 30 percent but there's another us exposed shareholder that has 30 percent as well together the us shareholders control more than 50 percent and then that triggers a certain tax treatment right and that's a tax treatment that you really need to look for this this where an entity is controlled by US persons, and that's the control foreign corp, because you control you trigger what we call CFC rules. But anyway, if it is that you have less than 10%, then typically that is okay to the extent that there is less impact on your US tax return. And what do I mean by that? you would depending on your situation and depending on what your other financial assets may be it may trigger disclosure on the form 8938 which is a disclosure of foreign financial assets depending you know the various thresholds but that's one form that you need to look at but the good thing is that it's kind of like your f bars in that it is an asset declaration it doesn't necessarily trigger a tax liability so that that's that's an important distinction to make. So that that's the eighty nine thirty eight. Uh, there is something called a PFIC or passive foreign investment company, which is mm, it is it is quite nuanced. It's when so again we we're talking about where your interest in a foreign entity is less than ten percent. So a PFIC is a designation you're looking for. It's it's a a designation in the tax law that was created in the 1980s, I think, uh, under President Reagan. So it's code section 1297. So this is where 75% of more of the gross income is classified as passive of this entity. So 75% or more. And what do I mean by passive? Could be interest, dividends, capital gains, stuff like that, but it's passive. Or 50% or more of the assets are held for the production of passive income. And that typically involves real estate or something else that would produce the, the, the passive income, which we, we discussed previously. So if you have that PFIC designation, suddenly it crosses from being an asset declaration to something that can have a real tax impact. And what do I mean by that? You may be subject to one of the anti-deferral rules. So in in U.S. in in the in U.S. tax law, there are three types of as, uh, income def uh, anti-deferral rules that you need to kind of keep in mind. There's this PFIC regime, which we're talking about now. There's the subpart F, and there's guilty. We'll get on to those other two later. So we're talking about your interest is less than 10%. And if you add up all the other American U.S. exposed shareholders, your collective interest in this entity does not exceed 50%, right? So less than 10%. 
this if you trigger this prefix status that means that you can be subject to tax on phantom income what do i mean by that if the the value of the company or the underlying assets or whatever depending on the structure if it increases in value even though you did not get a distribution even though you didn't take any dividends you didn't take any interest whatever it is even though you didn't get a distribution the value has gone up and you may have to pay tax on that that phantom gain that's a paper gain so that's that's a really rough way of describing the the PFIC rules and why it's something to be careful with there are ways of legally avoiding it which you can discuss with your preferred advisor like there's a check the box election and stuff like that so have a conversation with your preferred advisor but keep in mind 10% or less you may be exposed to PFIC rules but definitely depending on your other assets disclosure under 938 on the form 8938 so what happens if you have uh ownership of control of between 10 and 50 percent in this foreign company and there are no other u.s shareholders just you and it's between 10 and 50 percent notice i said ownership of control because i know people like to use nominees that's a common uh, part of a corporate structure, not just in the Gulf area, but other parts of the world as well. I can in parts of Southeast Asia where we have quite a few clients. So when I say control, it keeps in mind or it also extends this conversation to those nominee structures. Even though on paper you may not be there, if it is that you have that, if you have the ability to you know access exercise influence you know you have a share of voice maybe not a share of value on paper but share of voice in between those those uh thresholds this would apply to you as well so you're looking at disclosure on well to if it is you made an initial investment it may trigger form 926 as well as the existence of your shareholding or your interest or your voice in this foreign entity may this may require disclosure in a form 5471 but it's not like the PFIC usually it's not like the PFIC where you may have to pay tax and phantom income so it's just a disclosure and so it doesn't normally have uh, an impact on your tax liability. Now, keep in mind that international tax for, from U.S. international tax is counterintuitive. And what do I mean by that? I mean that typically you would imagine that the Internal Revenue Service play, pays greater attention to someone who doesn't pay their taxes right that just seems to be logical but <laughs> it's the IRS is not very logical sometimes and I we know that it's a bit counterintuitive because they seem to focus more on when you do not disclose activity outside of the U.S. so investment activity or assets outside of the U.S. so for example if you don't pay your taxes, then of course, you know, penalties or interests or, or whatever. But if you don't disclose like a financial account, that could be up to 50% of the balance in the account. If you don't disclose the existence of your investment in this company in a form 5471, then uh, you're looking at $10,000 per failure to disclose. That, that's not a small amount. And if you have one or two free zone companies, like many people do, it just happens, right? that could be $20,000 each. And in terms of the balance in the accounts under the F bars, 
up to 50% of the unreported balance. And uh, there's a famous case in, in Florida where, you know, at least famous for us, where we really got up and pay attention a few years ago, where this, this guy, I think he was a dentist, and he had about a million dollars in an account in Switzerland, which the IRS deemed that he forgot or he... Uh, I, I think he was non-willful in, in not disclosing it over three years, but they, the point is they went for the maximum. So he was given well, three years, a million dollars, so half a million each. So his penalty was $1.5 million in an account with a million dollars in it. So my point is that in, in U.S. international tax, pay special attention to disclosing your investments and disclosing your holdings outside of the U.S. Not just paying your tax bill, but disclosure is really, really important. So, right. so circling back to where we were, that company, that company, which your interest is between ten and fifty percent, then you really need to pay attention. Make sure you get your fifty-four seventy-one in for your initial investment. Your nine two six. That to pay special attention to that because the penalties could be pretty aggressive. And if you have signature authority over corporate bank accounts, like many people do, even though it's not in your own name, but it's in, and, but you can sign for it. And even if you could, even if you're signing authority means that you can't sign a check on your own or you can't sign for a transaction on your own, it'll be you plus another director or you plus another C-suite exec. It needs to be declared in your FBAR still. So pay attention to disclosure so last but not least it will be a corporate structure where your interest is more than 50 percent or you plus the other u.s exposed shareholders exceeds 50 percent and by u.s exposed uh not just if you have a u.s passport but if you have a green card as well or alternatively you know it could be you have you know section 7701 substantial presence you spend a lot of time in the U.S. and intentionally, unintentionally, you you trigger U.S. Uh, tax residents. So if it is that it's more than 50%, you have what is called a CFC or Control Foreign Corp. And suddenly, it's not just about disclosure, but there may actually be tax implications. So you may actually trigger certain tax consequences, not disclosure, but a higher tax bill if it is that you have a control foreign corp that it may not that hasn't been structured in an optimal way the three regimes that you'd want to pay attention to would be the subpart f which came around i think it's in the 1960s the uh what else under the tax cut and jobs act you have guilty so i think those are the main ones we spoke about pfix already when it's a cfc if it's a, an entity which can trigger both PFIC and CFC rules, then CFC rules tend to win. So it, it, you look at CFC rules. We've already discussed PFIC. So it's a CFC, it's a control foreign corp. You have a, a control foreign corp as a U.S. exposed person in one of the free zones. What are the implications, right? You could have uh, what is called a subpart F income. And what is subpart F? That's under section 952, I think, of, of the U.S. tax code. So this is a certain a classification of certain types of income. So this is where you have the interest in the foreign company. And 
it does, it, it can trigger subpart F status in one of several ways. There, there's insurance income, there is uh, foreign-based company income, there's foreign-based company sales income. So basically, if you have in one, if you companies established in one jurisdiction, but that same company is doing business in another jurisdiction, other than the one in which is incorporated, and especially with a related party, that could, under certain circumstances, trigger subpart F. That's section 952. And then more recently in President Trump's Tax Cut and Jobs Act back at the end of 2017, you have the creation of, of, of guilty, which I think is section 951A. So this guilty is global intangible low tax income. And what it does, it, it as the name suggests, it focuses on entities that have been incorporated in lower tax jurisdictions. For example, one of the Gulf states which is obviously very low or zero tax, depending on your structure. And it imposes a minimum tax, which is around 10, 10 and a half percent at this point in time. It's a rather complex formula based on tested income and, and, and stuff like that. But essentially, even though under both the subpart F rules and the guilty rules, the point is that you would have imagined that this company is only taxable to you as this shareholder when there's a distribution, either in the form of dividends or in some sort of salary or compensation, director's fees or something like that. And you would have thought if you were to leave the money in that company, then it would not be taxable to you. So the bad news is under these regimes, it will be taxable to you. So even though you did not take a distribution, you are deemed to have taken a distribution. So again, it's a situation where you're paying tax on phantom income, income that you did not receive. Now, you're not gonna be double taxed, so you're not gonna pay tax on the money that's earned, and then when you take it out, you're gonna be taxed again, no. You're gonna create a pool of previously taxed income within the company, and then when you do take that dividend out, they do take that bonus, then you get to offset the tax already paid, and you just pay the delta, you pay the difference. But my point is, and I know it's a pretty long-winded answer, that when you have that company in, in the Gulf area, in the UAE, in Dubai, wherever, wherever it may be, you'd want to speak to your advisors uh, to understand, hey, what are the tax implications? And perhaps there, there would be planning opportunities, ways to plan and to structure it in which it would reduce the compliance burden upon you know the time you need to to do the returns every year and the the price associated with that obviously as well as the tax liability so that's that's the those are the factors you need to consider i hope that helps get advice all right uh yes kapoor i've seen your question we'll we'll get to that shortly I'm um, just going through the others that were sent. Uh, but well, kind of actually related to yours, someone is saying, okay, they're a contractor. They're, they're doing work for a U.S. company. So a company based in the U.S. and they're working from the Gulf area and they are asking about Form W-8s, right? So depending on the structure and depending on your personal status, they 
company that you're working for may ask you to fill out a W form. If it is that you are US exposed, like many of you are, you'd probably want to be filling out a W-9 in which you disclose that, hey, I am a US person and here's my social. Or if you're working through a US entity to that client, then you may want to disclose the EIN or the employee identification number. So it, it, it depends on your situation. But if you are US exposed, you want to be using a W-9. If you're not US exposed, you probably want to be using one of the many W-8 forms. There are probably like a dozen of them. The most popular of which is the form W-8 itself, the W-8-BEN itself, and the W-8-BEN-E. The difference being the W-8-BEN is normally for a natural person, and the W-8-BEN-E is normally for uh, an entity. These are non-US entities and non-US natural persons. Now, it becomes a bit controversial because in those forms, you have yourself identifying that you are not U.S. exposed for purposes of Chapter Four. You are, you know, in Revenue Code Chapter Four um, withholding. Don't need to get into that. But basically, you're, just, you're saying, "Hey, I am not U.S. exposed." So where are you exposed? If it is that you, for example, if you're in the UAE, the point is that. These or you know, or, or, you know, Saudi or, or whatever, depending on your situation, there is no income tax, right? And you're not a U.S. person, so what do you put under this section for where you tax resident and what is your tax ID? What is your foreign tax ID? These jurisdictions have no tax, so how can you give a tax ID for a jurisdiction that has no tax? And it is it is a bit controversial. The UAE does not. Act, issue tax IDs. So there is no FTIN, right? What the, the UAE, as an example, they issue a tax residency certificate, also known as a tax domicile certificate. But that's not the same thing. It's not, you can't be tax resident somewhere with, one can argue you can't be tax resident somewhere without taxes, right? So pay special attention to those forms and you may want to seek advice in filling out a W-8 form or W-9 form. W-9 should be straightforward, but one of the W-8 forms for any transaction you involved in with uh, an entity in the US. So pay special attention to it. Because uh, it's a nice segue, I'll go to your question, Kapoor. Uh, what, are the, what are the consequences of not filing FATCA? Uh, I assume by that, and correct me if I'm wrong below, I'm assuming by that that you mean that you haven't filed a U.S. tax return and you are U.S. exposed and required to do so. In, in that case, uh, you may want to speak with an advisor to, to look at one of the options for you. Ba basically, generally speaking, there are many options. There are many options, but generally speaking, when you speak with your advisor, determination needs to be made as to whether your non-compliance was willful or non-willful. If it was willful, so, you know, and there are a number of triggers for that. So, and there, there's no definition of willfulness in, in, in code and in the revenue code. So we have to look at case law. So if it is that you intentionally and deliberately sought to evade a known legal duty, then your conduct may be termed, deemed to be willful. And you may be wanting to look at one of the disclosure programs in the, in, uh, in the 
IRS manual. So you'd want to speak with a tax lawyer. If you don't have one, we can introduce you to a tax lawyer who specializes in, in disclosure cases like for someone who may be willful in their non-compliance. And you made a decision that now is the right time to come follow, which is always good. You just want to get the important thing is to get to the IRS before the IRS starts looking for you. Once they start looking for you, you're going to have a whole world of hurt. So that's one option. If your non-compliance was non-willful, then you typically be looking at the streamlined compliance procedure, which is something that we do work with. We do probably uh, four or five or six, maybe each month. Uh, it's driven by the statute of limitations. So you, you file three years return. So the last three years for which due date has already passed, which in this case will be 21, 20, and 19. And the last six years of FBARs, which will be your foreign bank account reports, which we've referenced previously. So you do those together, as well as a statement, which explains your non-compliance. Most people write it themselves. Some people get an attorney to help them draft it, which we can work with you on through the attorneys that we work with. And the good thing is that the IRS would agree to waive penalties. You pay interest on any taxes you might owe, but they would waive any penalties that may be due to your non-compliance. So, you can reach out to ourselves, you can reach out to your preferred tax team and get that sorted as soon as possible. Okay, I see some private messages. Okay, I just moved to Saudi. What benefits are available to filing from abroad? Tariq, thanks for asking that question. So uh, I'm assuming that you moved to Saudi as a employee as opposed to an employer. If you move as an employer and you're setting up your own company, please refer to the points that I made previously. And again, if you came in late, don't worry, this is being recorded and you can play it back from either YouTube or website or one of the many podcast platforms. We're gonna publish it on all of those. And you can see what we discussed earlier on disclosing your company, depending on your shareholding right? So I'm going to assume that you're an employee, right? So the biggest benefit, I think, and most people, most of you would agree with me, of, that's available to U.S. persons who are employees working outside of the U.S. is under Code Section 911, which is the Foreign Income Exclusion. So what that allows you to do is to exclude, and the amount moves with inflation, yeah, inflation, right? That's another controversy, but the amount moves each year with inflation and they, it's determined by, by the revenue every year. So for 2021, which you're filing for in 2022, I think it's around $112,000. So basically the first 112 plus you have your standard deduction. And so let's say you might be filing jointly, that might be another 24, 25,000. So let's say a hundred and plus you get a housing deduction as well as your standard deduction. So let's say all in, maybe it's 150,000. So roughly speaking, I'm just being really rough with the numbers now. So let's say it's the first 150,000 of your earned foreign earned income exclusion. So this is your earned income, which will be, it's still gonna be disclosed to the IRS and the form 2555, but it may not be taxable. So it's declared, but it's not taxable. And that's probably the biggest benefit and the best benefit that you're gonna get as a US taxpayer outside of the US. So you're gonna look, when you're speaking with your advisors, you're gonna make sure that they give you, the, that you enjoy the benefit of that section 911 foreign earned income exclusion. 
So that that's the main benefit that you would have as someone filing from outside of the US. Okay, I hope that helps Tariq. Next question. So Luca is asking, is there any way to optimize the taxation of dividends from US companies to reduce the 30% withholding due to the missing DTA between the US and the UAE, DTA double tax treaty or double tax agreement between the US and the UAE? I'm assuming, Luca, that you're not a U.S. person because uh, if you are a U.S. person and they do withhold 30%, you should tell them that you are a U.S. person. And it goes back to the point that I made earlier in responding to someone else that you should be giving them a W-9 if you are a U.S. person, which discloses your, your social. Or if you're working through an entity, your EIN, and you confirm to them, hey, I am a U.S. person. Do not withhold. Just give me gross. And when I'm doing my tax return, I'm going to treat it right. So that's if you were a U.S. person. If you're not a U.S. person and, you, and you're right, there is no double tax agreement with the UAE, then there's no way normally of reducing that 30% withholding. So dividends from U.S. companies. So it's, it's, it falls under treatment that's called FDAP, Fixed Determinable Annual and Periodic. So payments that are deemed to fall under FDAP which would include your dividends, your interest, maybe royalties, basically what we consider passive income, generally speaking. I'm sorry, but it's gonna be subject to 30% withholding. And if you live in a, a non-treaty jurisdiction, there's very little, if anything, you can do. There's nothing you can do to reduce it. So I'm sorry, but I hope that answers your question. Okay, I have another question. Also, I deal with stocks most of the time. I sometimes buy and sell. Do you think if I leave money invested and don't liquidate, it's better than liquidating when markets are high? What impact could it have on my tax returns? So hmm, I'm assuming that you are a U.S. person, so you are a U.S. taxpayer. So you're either a U.S. citizen or a green card holder or you've triggered uh, substantial presence, right? So U.S. taxpayer. Uh, if you buy and sell, blah, 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 blah. Obviously, you know, you need a liquidity event, right? So if it is, so to your point, yes, if it is that you are not going to sell your, your shares, then ordinarily speaking, I'm assuming, because we spoke about PFIX and stuff like that in one of the previous responses, but if you just... Uh, a shareholder in publicly traded equities, direct shareholder, uh, then you should not trigger, ordinarily you should not trigger PFIX status. And as long as you don't sell, yeah, I mean, there's no liquidity event, therefore there should be no taxes due. If it is that they are dividend yielding stock though, then that will be taxed at, well, either qualified dividends or ordinary tax rates, depending on, on what the nature of the investment is. But yeah, it would be, if you leave the money invested, it should not trigger any tax consequence, uh, depending on what it is. And especially if it's a foreign investment, so you don't get 1099s. You may need to take special care in making sure that everything is properly disclosed on your returns. Because may, remember we said that the U.S. is so counterintuitive. International tax rules in the U.S. so counterintuitive. It's about proper disclosure proper disclosure as opposed to payment. So make sure if you've invested in, in any publicly traded shares and any of the, the Gulf or any privately 
uh, held companies in the Gulf area, make sure that you work with your advisors to ensure that it is properly disclosing your tax returns. I hope that answers your question. Next one, more context. I'm an Indian citizen with a green card living in the UAE, but I could not travel to the US in 2020 and 2021. I finally got my green card reactivated and traveled to the US in 2022. Right, okay. So consider a green card. A green card is kind of like uh, a re-entry permit. Look at it like that. So my point is that even though your green card may have expired or you may have lost it, as long as you didn't properly surrender it to the comp a competent authority. So for example, an embassy or someone at CBP Customs and Border Protection, and they give you an I-407, so you did not properly surrender that card, you still remain a US taxpayer. Even if it's lost, even if it's stolen, even goes through the washing machine. I've seen them all. I've seen the green cards go through the washing machine, the clients bring them to us. So we've seen them all. So regardless, of this, this, the condition or the expiration of the physical card, you are still a US taxpayer. So yes, you need to make sure that you're up to date with your taxes. And that may include either going through the, the voluntary disclosure, which we discussed earlier for someone whose non-compliance was willful or the streamline, which we discussed earlier for someone whose non-compliance is deemed to be non-willful. I hope that helps uh okay so yes luca you clarified so yeah okay fine okay right so i'm just flipping through to the other questions again if you have questions that you didn't get a chance to submit in advance uh just just type them in below and we get to them in the order in which we received it uh 8854 so someone Either you've given up your green card or you intend to give up your green card. Uh, right, okay, so you've given up your green card. Okay, fine, we, we, we work with probably four or five clients every month that give up their green card and or, or, or give up their passports because for whatever personal reasons, they no longer wish to, at least from our point of view, to be part of the US tax system, which is, which is fine. The question is, you, so you gave up your green card, which is normal, but you did not complete an 8854. So this is like an expatriation form. It basically, I call it the goodbye form. So when the IRS sees it as part of, it, of your tax submission, they know that, hey, this person is on their way out. They've either given up their passport and they got a CLN, a certificate of loss of nationality, or they've given up their green card and they got the I-407. So they're on their way out. So the question is, you've done it, you've given up your green card, but you did not prepare and properly submit an 8854, which is the expatriation return. What happens? Are you still subject to US taxes? The, the good news is that you should not be subject to U.S. taxes, but there are some programs where you can seek relief for not having done the 8854. The problem, the biggest problem that you may face is that you may be considered a covered expat because ordinarily you'd be, you trigger a covered expat status if uh, ordinarily if your net assets net, so assets minus liabilities, worldwide assets, including your condo in, uh, in Dubai, so your worldwide assets exceed $2 million. 
So net of liabilities, if it exceeds $2 million, you'd be considered a covered uh, expat, a covered expatriate, that's covered expatriate, I guess. Or if it is that your tax liability for the preceding uh, five years on average had exceeded, I think it's like $172,000 or something. So you basically have had to high tax bills. And this would be uh, a status which can you can trigger as a, a US citizen on the way out, or if you were a long-term permanent resident. So just having a green card and giving it up and hitting one of those two thresholds doesn't necessarily make you a covered expat. But if you are a long-term expat, so you held that green card for eight years, which depending on when you got it in the first place and when you gave it up, could be as few as six years because of the way the tax years work. But anyway, generally speaking, let's, let's say for seven or eight years, then you may trigger, then you would be conscious of the possibility of trigger, co triggering covered expat status. So you, we, whoever you sit with needs to have that conversation with you. But bottom line is, let's assume that you were a long-term permanent resident. Just by failure to form the 8854, it should not leave you exposed to tax on your worldwide income. You still pay tax on your U.S. source income, just like everybody else, and your rental property in California or whatever it is, yes, you're going to pay taxes on that, but you're not going to be taxed on your worldwide income the way you were when you were uh, a lawful permanent resident of the U.S. Bottom line, speak to an advisor, get that 8854 done as soon as possible. So, okay. Any other questions? <laughs> yeah, so this is one of the previously submitted questions I'm getting to now. This is one on crypto. So... I kid you not, I get probably like three, four emails every week of being contact, people contact us through our website at hej.tax. And they ask me about crypto investments and specifically they invested in a crypto exchange, either in Singapore or Hong Kong or Malaysia, or they're non-Americans who have invested in a, a crypto exchange that's supposed to be in the US not one like Kraken or Coinbase or one that everyone has heard of, some exchange that I really haven't heard of. They, they've made gains. They've done well. Good for you. Glad that you're doing well. And for some reason, the exchange is asking you to prepay the taxes. But they can't take the taxes from your gains. They want you to make, uh, they want you to deposit or transfer more, either more fiat or more bitcoin or more tokens in order for them to release the gains to you uh again you know i, I don't want to make any sweeping statements but that is not usual that is not normal i i i don't want to use the word scam because that may be inappropriate but i would double check that with a tax advisor the cases uh, that I've seen, almost all the cases I've seen, it appears to be very irregular. So bottom line is this, you've invested in exchange, you've invested in some trading platform, you've done well, and they're asking you to transfer more for supposed tax liability. Those that have invested in so-called exchanges in the US, and they've given, they've sent me the emails that they got or the communication they've got from the platform. And it quotes, an, a U.S. agency that I do not know to exist. 
And if you drop it in Google, it really does not exist. So, you know, I'm just saying, I'm not telling you what to do. This is not advice, but I think you should really sit with a professional and go through whatever it is that they've sent you in terms of the contract or whatever, because it is highly uh, unusual for you to be asked to pay taxes in advance of the event and in advance of the uh, of, of cashing in or getting or liquidating whatever the portfolio is that you may have. So just double check to make sure is, is my point, especially in jurisdictions like Singapore, Hong Kong, and Malaysia, which have no capital gains taxes in the first place. So it, it just seems to be highly unusual, but it happens all the time. I'm, I'm sorry, but that, that's, that's the honest truth, right? Okay. Any other questions or comments? And let me just have a quick look at the guys on Facebook to see if anybody's saying anything. Okay, so you guys are quiet. That's good. Great. And I'm back here on Zoom. Yes, I think I've dealt with all the private messages that I got. I'm just scrolling back up. So Mark is asking, can you comment on foreign-held corporate DB pensions? Uh, DB pensions. I'm not too sure what, what you mean. Oh, defined benefit pension plans. Okay. All right. So, again, you know, one of the benefits or one of the interesting parts of working outside of the U.S. is that you get access to various financial products right and you know you'd be offered especially there are lots of enthusiastic financial advisors that uh promote products that may not be compliant or compatible with the u.s taxes and what do i mean by that they may appear on the surface to be a pension product or uh, an insurance product but when you when you investigate it and you look at it from a U.S. tax perspective, the treatment is is quite different from what you would have expected. Okay, so the first thing is that most of these products are not U.S. qualified, meaning that you don't get to reduce your taxable income. So it's not like uh, putting it in a 401k or something in the U.S. using a U.S. platform with a U.S. custodian, right? It's not going to reduce your taxable income. Ordinarily speaking, it's not going to reduce your taxable income. That's the first, that's the first thing, which well, you know is kind of neutral. Maybe you knew that, maybe you expected it. The the nuts, the the other piece of news is that remember earlier when we were speaking about PFIX or passive and foreign, passive foreign investment companies. We, you know, again, this is being recorded. So if you came in late, you can play, you can just play video over from the beginning, right? So just be aware you should sit with an advisor to go over those types of investments before you proceed with them. Or if you have already done so, it's, you know, it's better late than never sit with your advisor, go over that pension product, go over that insurance product, because it may be a PFIC. What do I mean by that? The U.S. tax consequences that we discussed earlier, recall that. It means that you may be subject to, to what we call holding gain. So, you, you know, you may, even though they, you haven't taken a distribution from it or, or whatever, 
you may still be subject to taxes uh, on the returns that come, you know, the, the dividends, the interest, whatever it is, it's an investment product, right? So you may not get to defer recognizing those gains until retirement in the first place. That's number one. And then second to that, the growth in the portfolio itself, I'm not talking about distributions in terms of interest or dividends, but the portfolio growth, that capital gains may still be taxable to you as holding gains under the PFIC regime, as we as we mentioned earlier. So I know that's not really good news, but uh, find your preferred US qualified advisor, sit with him or her and go through the investments that you made or the investments that you intend to make to understand what the tax consequences are and and get and, and get set on trying to mitigate that as soon as possible. So hope that helps. Next message from, okay, Anwar. Okay. What tax liability is on a non-US person trading on US markets? For example, NASDAQ via broker, like interactive brokers. I read somewhere that capital gains are not taxed, but dividends are. Okay, yes, you're absolutely correct. We, we touched on that earlier when we're talking about forms. So in this case, you may be asked to complete a form like a W8BEN or W8BEN-E if you're using like one of your free zone companies to do the investment. If you're doing it in your own name, it might be a W8BEN. And, and yeah, capital gains should be tax-free ordinarily. But dividends uh, and interest would be tax. Uh, there'll be thirty percent FDAP withholding. FDAP stands for fixed determinable annual and periodic. So those types of distributions to you, that'll be subject to thirty percent withholding. It can be reduced by treaty. So if you're in a treaty jurisdiction, obviously, as someone pointed out earlier, the UAE doesn't have a double tax agreement with. The U.S., but other jurisdictions nearby may. So, if you're domicile or you're tax resident, one of those, you may be subject to the reduced holding, withholding. So, it can go down from thirty to twenty to fifteen to ten, depending on where you are and what the treaty enforces. But you're absolutely correct. Capital gains are tax-free. Dividends are thirty percent withholding. Next question. Secondly. What is the age a U.S. citizen child has to start filing taxes if both of the parents are non-Americans? Good question. When that child starts making money. So ordinarily, that will be after school, right? So after you go through high school or college or university, then you, you get a job or you start a business and then you pay taxes. But, you know, some kids are talented, right? They may be uh, an entertainer or a, a, a child athlete. But once that child starts earning money, you may want to have a conversation with a U.S. advisor as to whether this income that your, your child has generated is taxable to the U.S. So, so to answer your question again, as soon as that child or that, that person is earning money, whether it be as a minor or after education as an adult. Okay. I hope that helps. I'm just going to do a quick check on the other side to see if there are any questions that I may have missed. Mm -hmm. Nothing on that side, nothing on this side. So we're coming up to an hour now. It was great to see such a great crowd uh, today. I enjoyed your questions. Oh, 
We have a last minute submission. Okay, this is the last one, okay? All right, greetings. You keep getting disconnected. That's okay, Pierre. Glad to have you. I'm from the US, working in Saudi, a teacher since 2019. I'm not sure what to do about my taxes and blah, 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 dealing with real estate and stock investments. Yep. Feel so the, the, even though it may not be taxable in Saudi, it is taxable to the US. So you still need to file your tax returns like you normally did. They, as mentioned earlier, and again, if you've come in, I know pay, you, 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 your connection has been dropping, so you can play this video. This, this video is being recorded. It'll be available on YouTube, on our website, hg.tax by tomorrow, and eventually we'll publish it on about 23 podcast platforms. Wherever you get your podcast, you're going to get it, okay? So don't worry about it. And you can play it back from the beginning, and you can see what we said about Section 911 being the best benefit available to U.S. persons outside of the U.S., so a substantial part of maybe up to roughly, I'm just ballparking it, uh, depending on your situation. And I gave it like married filing jointly. So you get the standard deduction plus housing plus utility bills. So maybe the first 150K of US of your income, maybe it may be reportable, but it won't be taxable to the US. So you, you file your tax returns, look for that section 911 benefit on the form 2555. If it is that you have your investments in, in, in terms of rental property, that remains taxable as business as usual, whether it be back in the U.S., which is easy, or outside of the U.S. If, you make, if you've been making investments outside of the U.S., which is always good, you know, get your investment game on, but it's all taxable to the U.S., so, so keep that in mind. Uh, if you want to work with us, feel free to reach out to us uh, via our website, hcj.tax, and you know, myself, one of our team or colleagues will be happy to help you work with you. Okay. And that is it. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. We do these live streams every week. And, you know, you can visit our website. We have over 2,000 articles free of charge uh, on key things to consider in international tax, as well as over 1,000 videos on our YouTube channel and our podcast platforms. Have a good morning, day, evening, depending on where you are. And we see you next time. Bye-bye. So if you're a six, seven, or eight-figure investor, entrepreneur, or business owner who needs a tailor-made solution from a qualified team of professionals, we can help you achieve the international lifestyle, the freedom, and even the tax savings you're looking for. Visit us at htj.tax and live that international life.